Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was, and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In this episode, I speak with Bruno Reddy, CEO of Maths Circle, which includes Timestables, Rockstars and Numbots. He's the former head of maths at King Solomon Academy and one of the pioneers of mathematics mastery as we know it today. As you will hear, he's hugely passionate about mathematics and has thought long and hard about what needs to be done to teach it effectively. Some of the things that are just starting to become common practice now, like retrieval practice, space practice and variation theory, are things that he was talking about 10 years ago. When Bruno and I first started discussing what we would chat about, he spoke about how he didn't just want to speak about effective teaching that supports what we know about how learning happens, but to also structure the episode to support the listener in making connections. Hopefully you appreciate the preparation he put into this conversation. I do want to apologize for some of the sound quality in this podcast. It was the first episode that I have recorded face-to-face, and unfortunately my microphone didn't work properly. However, luckily Bruno does most of the talking, and I feel his sweet velvety British tones more than makes up for the poor sound quality from my end. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Bruno Reddy. Bruno, can you just give us a bit of an overview of, of your, your career up until this point? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Brendan. It's very nice to meet you in person. As he said, I, I flew in to Sydney late last night, and this was like my first stop. So very excited to be here. So my career over the last 20 years, well, I, I, my degree was actually in psychology. So I'm kind of a psychologist by background. My, both my parents, my sister, we've all got degrees in psychology. So in, in some senses, I'm a psychologist masquerading as a teacher. I got into maths teaching through the charity called Teach First, which is equivalent to Teach for Australia uh, and any of the other Teach for All kind of counterparts around the world, like Teach for America and Teach for Columbia and places like that. So Teach First, that's how I got into teaching, went in as a maths teacher, not as a psychology teacher, and loved it. Like from day one, I was like, maths is my thing. I think like a, a mathsy kind of person. I love the, I just love the subject. But what I also realized is that maths has a really bad rap. And I thought that doesn't need to be that way. Like it, it can be so much fun. It, there can be loads of diverting things to get really interested in and excited about. And fundamentally, I thought that people who were saying, oh, I'm no good at maths or maths isn't for me, maths is boring, may have not had the best instruction when they were learning maths. Yeah. And I thought like, maybe there's something I can do about this. I want to flip the script. There's so much I want to flip the script on. The reputation of maths is is definitely one of them. So anyway, that started off my lifelong passion and journey through education. I left Teach First. Or I left the school after teaching for two years because that was what I thought was part of doing Teach First was all about. I got into an engineering company called Arup, who are the, the company who way back designed the Sydney Opera House, no yeah. less. I did that for a little while, but immediately missed the classroom. I then had the chance to open up a school. So I'd been a teacher for two years. Some other teachers who are in a similar position also left, left the classroom. They wanted to open up a school. 
we were like 26, 27, 28 at the time. And then we were in the right place at the right time in England when this this thing was born called the Academies Programme, which allowed us to open up a school. So we did. We, we opened up a school. I started my third year of teaching there at this brand new school as head of maths. And it was it was there on this blank slate that that I had where I had the chance to innovate and think through things more deeply. I couldn't take anything for granted. I didn't have a head of math to turn to. I was the head of math. So I had to think and think and think and read and make mistakes and try stuff out. And the beauty of where I was teaching at this school in London called King Solomon Academy was that I was teaching the same lesson three times a day. Mm. So in terms of my own professional development, I mean, that was just insane. Like to have the chance to repeat the lesson is so rare. Like you would almost never be timetabled to teach the same material three times a day. And what that meant was that as the day went on, like my third iteration of the same lesson, my uh, my mental workspace, my my working memory was freed up while I was teaching to be doing all the stuff that makes a good teacher great. Mm. All the behavioral stuff, all the teach like a champion stuff. Yeah. I could spot like the small noises that were happening, the, the little bits of disruption. I could go and deal with them in a really helpful way so like when my brain's really occupied and i'm there a teacher in the first lesson if i'm trying to correct something or change something that i see a student doing i'm probably going to take at the time i would have taken the quickest route to addressing that which probably like directly address that student from across the classroom and and ask them to stop doing it Mm. maybe in a fairly heavy-handed way no good for relationships totally Mm. unnecessary derails the lesson as my as my working memory in, in like had more capacity as the day went on yeah i could go and take a much more subtle approach much more effective much more appropriate given like what the students might have been doing maybe just walk over to them just stand sort of near their physical space maybe just sort of tap the desk maybe just kind of eyeball them while i'm speaking just kind of notice things anyway that like massively transformed my teaching practice being head of maths, I got the chance to think about curriculum design, assessment, big picture stuff, yeah. small picture stuff, and really fuel. Like there wasn't enough fuel for my for my passion. Like I could mm. just like do everything to do with maths education. So I came up with some cool stuff. Some stuff worked, some stuff didn't. Yeah. Uh, and now here I am, kind of like 13, 14 years after starting that school, speaking to you. Yeah. Like it's mental the on the other side of the world. Like I just, I was in the right place at the right time. What can I say? And, yeah. I, and I love math teaching and now here I am. So yeah. i got a few things that, to think about that I think about all the time that are important to me. I'm not in the classroom anymore at the moment. One day I hope to go back, but as soon as I do, like the things that I wanted to share with you are the things that are kind of highest up on, on my agenda as a teacher, the yeah. things that I think make the most Im- impact. Yeah, look, I like your point that you said there about as a teacher and you had that opportunity to teach the same lesson multiple times. Mm. I, I transitioned, as you know, from being a high school teacher to a primary teacher and I found that a really difficult transition to make because you've got to first be an expert across every single subject. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and not just an expert at teaching that subject but have that pedagogical content knowledge as well, yeah. you know, be able to teach it for that that group yeah. of kids in front of you. And you didn't have that same opportunity to teach the same lesson over and over again, you know, which, yeah, you, you generally do get that that chance yeah. in secondary. Well, well, yes, but I would have probably had, in a typical secondary school, I would have had a year seven lesson, a year eight lesson, a year nine lesson, a year yes. ten lesson, all in the same day. Yeah. 
So yeah, same subject, but different content by being able to repeat the same lesson three times. It meant that second, second lesson, I was already, you know, I'd taken on uh, improvements in my own instruction. Like I could second guess where there were going to be misconceptions. I could Mm -hmm. second guess what questions they would have and be there already with an answer or with a better question or with better modeling from the off. Yeah. So I just it got me to thinking about the examples that I was using, the whole class questioning that I was using. Yeah. Just yeah, I can't if principals are listening to this and if you've got a way to timetable your teachers so that they get the chance to repeat mm-hmm. lessons, their professional practice will go through the roof. Yeah. And it, it just makes me think about like, you know, initial teacher education as well yeah. and, and beginning teachers. Like imagine yeah. how much quicker their development would be if they were able to do something like that. Hundred percent. I like the reports that have been coming out recently from from Australia about initial teacher training. Yeah. The emphasis on evidence backed approaches. You know, that's all sounding really positive and heading in the right direction. I like a book that was transformational to us as a school. We, it was kind of our teaching bible. Was called Teach Like a Champion. Yeah. By an educator in America called Doug Lamoff. Yeah. If you can get hold of that book, the beauty of it is that it gives a name to all these fantastic teaching techniques and practices Mm. before that book like we would individually be doing maybe one or two good things here and there Mm. but we didn't have a name for what we were doing it we're just kind of doing it maybe we'd seen somebody else doing it but by putting a name to all these different techniques you're suddenly able to talk about it in a staff room setting you're able to explicitly practice them and think about them and refine them anyway teach like a champion like there's a couple of books out on it there's there's a whole coaching model around it please take a look It's it's a great great offer yeah offer. Yes, i highly recommend it as well and, and you know it's definitely having that shared language and a shared understanding of like, different teaching techniques it just makes such a difference because huge first off like, and even just from uh consistency with your teachers from year to year and, and classes from year to year yeah you don't have to keep reteaching the same routines that's it yeah that's it look Bruno, i know that there's five things that have been yeah. on your mind for a long time now yeah and, and you've just been busting to <laughs> and and as soon as i kind of reached out to you you know when, when i found out you're coming over and, and said you know do you want to hop on the podcast and you said you've got these things that i want to talk about i was like all right awesome let's do it and so what are the five things Bruno? yeah five okay things five things so I, I want to kind of, they all come together under this like really effective teaching practice, because what I want is that children leave school, say I'm good at maths. And I think that's achievable and possible for every student given time. And, and if we could, if we could all work together, to, I, I know we kind of all want that, but it's not like just exam results for me. It's this each child, each student leaving saying I'm good at maths. They feel it. They understand it. They know it. So like, we're going to, I wanted to start with just talking about science of maths because that's, a phrase that hasn't necessarily landed fully in England, but I'm hearing it used a lot in Australia and on certain podcasts and in blogs. So I just want to start to unpick that. We're hearing about science of reading. What does it mean? What is, what is science of maths? What is, we can touch on things like cognitive load theory and aspects of that. Forming an understanding. Like I want students to have be quicker at knowing stuff, but also have a deep understanding. So I want to touch on forming an understanding. I want to talk about that. How do we get to the point of students just kind of knowing stuff? So that the recall side of things, I mustn't lose sight of uh, like the, the beauty of maths, if you like, where there's an opportunity to do more problem solving, to do inquiry stuff, to do projects. I, I think that's worth talking about. And then I want to talk about anxiety as well because of you know my background in psychology i'm thinking about how children feel about maths how we how teachers how 
educators how parents feel about maths so those those are the kind of my 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 five things if you like so awesome. that's like science of maths yeah. for, and maybe that's the umbrella under which everything really falls but forming an understanding there's the recall side of things there's the inquiry aspect of, of maths and then there's anxiety okay all right so let's start with what is the science of maths okay so science of maths is this new term uh, and you know if we were recording this podcast in like five years time people probably won't be talking about science of maths i'm guessing like it might be one of those phrases that is around for a while but then like other educational phrases, like you get people like contesting it, like that doesn't sit well with me. We can't use that phrase anymore. So look, let's just enjoy it while science of math is around. But to me, it's it's a handy phrase to say, you know, we're really interested now in like figuring out what really works. Yeah. We're not going to kind of, this is such an antiquated expression. I can hear my dad saying this, but we're not going to dilly dally like with our teaching. Like we're going to get down to, what cognitive scientists and psychologists have known for a long time we've got banks of evidence for and we're just going to teach things really well is kind of like how i'm going to describe science of maths and so like it's an umbrella term what feeds into that our understanding of of cognitive science and how students learn neuroscience you know stuff that that i learned that i took as my bread and butter when i was doing my degree so what does it mean like science of maths We've got to figure out and, and agree that cognitive load theory is is robust, has got enough evidence to support it. And I think that's where people are coming from. When you hear these phrases kind of all get, get mentioned at the same time, like evidence-backed approaches, cognitive load theory, science of math, you kind of, you're going to start to hear them fairly interchangeably because we're all kind of trying to say the same thing. Cognitive load theory, you'll have heard lots of people talking about it, and I'm really glad that they are, because I didn't realize this when I got into teaching, that it was that everything I'd learned in my degree was like being applied. You know, I thought I was going into teaching to become a teacher, but really, you're kind of a psychologist on the side. And it, it, it amazes me. And we're kind of all aware of this, of how little psychology is actually put into initial teacher training. And we're kind of now all making up for that. So... I'm not going to repeat stuff that other people have said, but you, you'll need to know about working memory and the transfer to long-term memory. If it helps to understand about the neuroscience and like what's going on with myelin sheaths uh, and synapses and neurons and things like that, then, you know, by all means delve into the, into the neuroscience and what's happening on a physiological level. But like, okay, so what does that then mean for teachers and what does it mean for students? And, is there anything wrong with cognitive load theory? Like, where is it missing a trick? Like, because there, there will be some people who are skeptical about it. Mm. There will be people who will say, well, is it kind of hocus pocus? I think now we've got to the point where there's so much evidence in favor of it. We've got to be careful about using certain analogies. Like, and I'm guilty of this. I've used the analogy of pigeonholes and having like these pigeonholes where we can slot certain things into our working memory. That holds some validity, but we've got, you know, and it certainly helps maybe to communicate the message of working memory, but that oversimplifies it in many ways. So just be mindful of the literature out there. There is so much evidence to support cognitive load theory and just keeping things in a chunkable, uh, a chunkable size. So I'll give you an example of a, a colleague of mine, Chris Bolton, mm -hmm. when he comes out to Australia uh, and he's coming, I think in term three, term four, mm -hmm. def yeah, definitely hook up with him. He knows so much about uh, direct instruction. He, he's practically on first name terms with Sweller uh, and co um, and Engelman uh, and all that 
all, all those guys. Um, he would do this thing where he would try and get the audience to memorize a string of 25 letters, like just random string of 25 letters, like just someone like just walked across the keyboard, mm-hmm. put that up for six seconds. Of course, no one can really remember beyond the, like the sixth or seventh letter in the sequence. And then he would put up another sequence of 25 letters, something like the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. Right. But all jumbled together, all, all stuck together with no spaces. Mm-hmm. And of course, lo and behold, the, the entire room can then remember the entire sequence of 25 letters, 26 letters, because you can now start to recognize those words yeah. and those chunks. And they will sit there for in your working memory in a totally different you know, size compared to a random string of 25 letters. So there's like analogies and like tests if you like that you can you can do to kind of remind yourself how chunking the amount of information the amount of repetition you're going to need is important and and how that then informs your teaching and your practice like something that i used to do a lot in some of the high school math that i was teaching is to if if certain processes in in high school math takes like five or six steps so like simple solving simultaneous equations yeah there's this one part in the in the sequence in the steps where you've got to decide: Are you going to add the equations together, or are you going to subtract? And that decision that students have to make to add or subtract the two equations is make or break. Mm. If you get that decision wrong, like you don't solve the equations. And for many, they were seeing it as a fifty-fifty. Like they didn't. They they was like, mm, I'm just going to add them. So what I try to do is in like a multi-step problem. It's just isolate just the decision that you're having to make and just practice the decision and forget all the other steps. Mm -hmm. Guys, we're just going to make a decision. Look at these two equations. I'm going to teach you whether to add or subtract them. And then we're just going to do that a dozen times. Yeah. Or if it's adding and subtracting negative numbers, you know, there's like when you're subtracting a negative number, you actually add them. And when you're adding a negative number, you subtract, right? So you've got to make that decision. What am I doing with these two numbers? Am I adding or subtracting? Just get the students to isolate that decision and make that decision over and over again. So it's things like that. When we understand cognitive science and working memory and chunking and things like that, we can change the way we're asking questions. We're changing how much information we are expecting students to hold and work with. And I think that's one of the things that I took away from my visit to Shanghai a few years ago yeah. was just incre- how incredibly well the teachers there were chunking things for their students and getting them to focus and pay attention to what was super useful. I'm going to come on to talking about that when I, when we momentarily like think about forming an understanding. So to wrap up, then I think what I would say about cognitive science, evidence-backed approaches, science of maths is to be mindful of students working memory and also how long it takes to learn something like it takes multiple repetitions something to get good at it like think of musical sports Mm. like to get really skillful as a musician or as a sports player you've got to do it time and time and time again and I don't think we realize that that yes the, the brain does learn but it takes an awful lot of time and effort and practice to get there so those are kind of my things my thinking around like learning cognitive science cognitive load that sort of stuff yeah and what i found really valuable with having an understanding about you know the cognitive science or the science of maths or the science of learning just really helps with, with your decision making 
you know, like teachers have to make thousands of decisions every single day on yep. the spot. Yeah. Constantly, the, the amount of variables from day to day, it just allows you to make a higher percentage of better decisions. Mm-hmm. And and when you get it wrong, you also then have a better idea as to what went wrong so that you can fix it next time. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So, uh, all right, do you want to go on to yeah. the second one? Yeah, so forming an understanding. Right? Yeah. I, I'm i kind of this, a teacher who likes to have their cake and eat it. Like I want students to be able to perform well when they need to perform well uh, and uh, on exams and tests and things, because that's going to kind of maybe open up the door to the next stage of their life. But I don't just want them to kind of regurgitate what I've taught them and, and have no understanding. Right. So it, it might sound obvious, but I'm not training my students to just pass exams. I want them to really understand the maths, the concepts. And so when, when these ideas around concrete picture abstract came out, like that was like, ha okay, I have a structure. Uh, and it's been great listening to some of the other people on your podcast and reading your blog. Cause you know, back in the day when concrete pictorial abstract kind of sort of first broke out onto the scene, it was like, right, okay, we must do C first, then we'll do the P, then we'll yeah. do the A. But now we realize that actually we need to be a lot more flexible. I love that about education that we kind of get more sophisticated as we go. So, all right. So that's, so CPA is definitely a tool in my, in my armory, multiple representations, that kind of thing, whether it with like multiple representations to represent the same concept. But w- one thing I am particularly obsessive about is this I- idea of minimally different questions, yeah. minimally different examples. And I'll just kind of, I- I'll go, I'll use this idea. If we were a scientist, or maybe we've been in a science classroom as a kid, and I don't know, like a classic thing in England, in an England science classroom, an English science classroom is to heat up some water, stick a thermometer in it, and then measure the temperature every few minutes mm. as it cools down. And then to do that in, in different beakers with different amounts of water or different, different insulators, because what really what we're doing is trying to test the insulation of the thing that the beaker is sat in. Now, a good scientist would know that you you only change one thing, right? Because you want to examine the effect of that thing. But just supposing, you know, a bad scientist is there heating up 500 mils of water and watching that cool. Well, the same the same scientist is, is then checking, is trying to do 250 milliliters of heated oil. And they're also trying to do 100 mils of warmed up vinegar. And they're doing the, like a cooling curve of all of them. Some are in a, a tin beaker, some are in a glass beaker, some are in a polystyrene cup. Like how many things have I changed there? Like far too many. Mm. Now slide that into how I used to teach maths and how I was coming up with questions, the worksheets I was making, the examples I was using. I'd go from one example to the next and change far too many things. Mm. Took me a few years to realize that all I'm doing is completely baffling students who are desperate to make sense of what I'm showing them on the board. And so I'd be changing the the signs the the operations like from plus to minus yeah. i'd be changing where the equals sign was whether it's on the sort of the left or the right of the equation i might be changing the shape of the that we were trying to find the area of i'd be changing far too many things and the students would be like what is going on because as humans we're we're desperate to make sense of the world mm-hmm. like that's really important to us it's, it's an innate thing that we do 
And there I was changing far too many things. They're acting as like mini scientists trying to work out what the dependent variable is here and what's what, measuring what's changed. But I was changing everything. Mm. And so minimally different questions is this idea that if you start with, I don't know, we're, we're going to just start with five times six. It's just popped into my head, right? We're trying to do five times six. We can show them that it's 30. And we can use multiple representations to show them that it's 30. Yeah. Okay, so they're starting to get a flavor of what you mean by five times six. Don't then jump into like seven times nine. Mm. Okay, we, we've changed two numbers. Don't jump into too quickly into into thirty divided by six. Although I do want to come on to an aspect of that in a minute. Instead of going for a, go from five times six to five times seven, mm. like we've only changed one number, or go from five times six to six times five. Mm. You got the same numbers, but you flip the order. Just change one thing. Don't try and change too many things as you go through from one question to the next. Yeah. So minimally different examples. And I've, I've seen that in your blog. I've seen that Alex uh, wrote that on the Think Forward Educators blog not that long ago. You'll find it in uh, the book by, there by, by Adam Boxer, Explicit and Direct Instruction. So uh, you'll see it in Craig Barton's book about things that he wished he knew when he was teaching. Yeah. Minimally different. Like you can't understate just how useful and important that is. And I brought a book along. Uh, this is only going to be useful for if anybody's watching the video version of, of this. It's called Thinkers. It's by John Mason, who's a professor at Oxford mm-hmm. University. It's a fantastic book for generating question stems. Like something that, you know, if I have it written on my math teacher tombstone, it's like, <laughs> here lies Bruno who like is a massive fan of great questioning technique. Yeah. Like, and this book is my go-to book for coming up with fantastic questions. Sometimes they're, well, they're designed to get children thinking and they're perfect for whole class questioning. They're perfect for mini whiteboards. Mm -hmm. They're perfect for assessing how much they understand. They're perfect for practice. They're perfect for exploring a topic, for developing it for minimally different questions. And I would use this like as a planning tool when I'm trying to work on my like procedural variation. Yeah. And actually variation theory is another really super interesting concept or idea in teaching that I would love people to spend time figuring out because it plays on this idea of minimally different questions, multiple representations and going from one question to the next and exposing the concept mm. to really get that under that forming of an understanding. So there's a few ideas there around forming and understanding concrete, pictorial, abstract, yeah. multiple representations, conceptual and procedural variation, minimally different questions. And then my, my last one, my, my la- well, I've got two actually non-examples. Mm. Oh my God. I love non-examples. Mm. And again, this is something that Alex mentioned yeah. in his blog for think forward educators. Non-examples are so useful for children to work out what something isn't. And, you know, I would spend many lessons defining what a quadrilateral is or a polygon or a triangle or this or that, but not telling them what it wasn't, Mm. not showing them counterexamples. Like when is a quadrilateral a quadrilateral? When is a polygon a polygon? And when is it not? Mm. Uh, And it's just so fundamental. Like if, if, and, and another analogy that I was telling about Chris Bolton would use when he, when I've seen him do workshops to make this point about non examples is that he would make up a gobbledygook term. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you'll see it actually in, in Adam's book there, a completely gobbledygook term. You've got to try and make sense of what this, this brand new phrase means 
and I can show you some examples, but if I don't show you what it's not, you're not fully going to understand the limits of this definition of what this new term means. So yeah, you can do like your own thought exercise by just making up a word yeah. and realizing that actually if you don't say what this, what it, what this thing isn't, you'll never really understand fully what it is. And then my last thing is working things backwards, which might sound weird, but math is the perfect subject often mm. where you can work things backwards. Right? And we want, you know, you get to an answer, you work the steps backwards, you get back to where you started. Like I'm the classic, I'm thinking of a number game. That works really well to teach students how to think backwards. But I would do that a lot. I would teach them the forward process of how to solve something. And then we'd work it backwards mm. and we'd kind of start from the answer and work out how we could get back to the question. Um, I say the same about subtraction and about counting backwards that to really help you with addition uh, and counting up we've got to help kids count back down so as a parent i used to do this with my kids but while they were going to going to bed i don't know if they'll ever thank me for this but but we would skip count back down in twos and it really helped their with their mental acuity and the same with multiplication and division i cannot do multiplication facts without doing the division facts to me they go hand in hand and mm. that inverse operation thing so so, okay, to recap then, forming an understanding to me comes from minimally different examples and questions and then being like really carefully sequenced. Examples and non-examples, working things backwards and multiple representations. And, and you know, what you will find, the things that you've just been speaking about, it's really just highlighting that difference between the novice and the expert. But with the novice not really having the ability to make those connections to the things that you're talking about, and so what we do, we fail, you know, that the old curse of noise gets us where because we know so much, we forget what it's like to be that novice and we take too big a step. We, we're able to make these different connections. You know, when you're looking at the your multiplication example there, we're able to make that connection between the different numbers and how this all part of the same concept. Yeah. But for these novices, when you're ch completely changing the numbers, they're not able to kind of focus on what you want them to be thinking about. Yeah, and you you expressed that really well in your, in your blog um, the other day, and that diagram of novice versus expert, and how the nodes are joined up, and how students can make sense. The you know the more expert they are, the more joined up the different concepts are, the more they're going to make meaning from what you're saying. So yeah, fully. And Robin and Kevin made that good point as well on their on their <coughs> podcast with you. All good, right? So along with the understanding, then or or, or twinned with that for me, has got to come the recall, knowing stuff, knowing stuff off by heart. Okay, so, so far I've been thinking about science of learning, science of maths, how that then feeds into my ideas around understanding. And next for me comes the recall, knowing stuff off by heart. Can't know all of maths, can't know every fact off by heart. I'm not saying that. We can't have recall without understanding. We can't have understanding without recall. So often people like to kind of polarize this and say, well, if you're getting kids to learn times tables off by heart, where's the understanding? And I told you, I'm this, I like to have my cake and eat it kind of guy. Of course, we're going to have the understanding. But then you've got the understanding brigade, if you like, saying, well, yeah, but you've got to have kids who know stuff or like what comes first, chicken and egg scenario. Do you teach the students to, to know these facts off by heart or do you teach them about the conceptual underpinnings? Mm -hmm. They go hand in hand. I think they need to be learned in tandem. I, I don't like to polarize debates education debates out there it's too easy to do that you've got this camp here and that camp there everybody now knows i think is hopefully appreciating 
the correct answer is in the middle. Mm. Like we, we, we take the best ideas from, from both sides. We want recall and we want understanding. So what's happening there on, on a kind of physiological level, if you like, if you want to know more about it is you've got these neurons. This is what transmits the electrical pulses in your brain. The more we use the, the particular individual neurons to get them firing, to transmit these signals, to transmit like understanding back out to, you know, to our, to our working memory, the, the, we, we build up, it's a bit like a muscle fiber in a way uh, that or I'd like you to maybe potentially think about it uh, like that. You're strengthening up what's called the myelin sheath mm. that allows the, the neuron to fire more reliably for that same thought, that same, you know, that, that same thought, that same piece of information. So it comes back to the tip of your tongue more quickly if it's being fired enough. And I think when it comes to recall, I mentioned that it takes us a long time to learn. Mm -hmm. So it's going to take us a while to actually form those myelin sheaths and, and for those neurons to fire as robustly and routinely as, as they can. But there needs to be a frequency as well. And there are some activities in the classroom that lend themselves well to high frequency. And mm -hmm. Robin and Kevin touched on it in their podcast that that frequency of thought is so important. That's why I love mini whiteboard mm -hmm. activities where I can be like, pinging questions yeah. quite quickly to many students i can be using it to assess their understanding what i don't like though are the activities where you've really just got one student on the spot or one against another and there's only really two students thinking like there's this activity that i used to do that i thought oh this looks like so much fun because the classroom is noisy when we do it and there's a smile on their face there's lots of shouting and commotion turns out now like I wish I'd never done it. I mean, I, I learned the hard way, if you like. Or I, but it's it's kind of this. It's called round the world, or sometimes it's like a shoot off, where you've got one student versus another. You, as the teacher, give the student or two these two students like one versus one, five times six. I'm going to keep coming back to five times six. I, I don't know why. It's my thing. Right, five times six. Who answers it first? Right, you. Good. Right, you go on to the next. You're the next challenger against the next student, yeah, yeah. and you go around the class like that. But what's happening? Okay, there's lots of noise, lots of commotion. There's lots of anticipation. Who's going to win? But only two people are thinking about that question. Mm. And the th yeah. what's worse is that two people are thinking about that question every 60 seconds. That's such a low frequency of asking and answering and thinking about the question. You're never going to build up recall. No. And I, yeah, I'm I feel bad for those students that I was teaching at the time when I thought this was a great activity. Now I know that we need to get the frequency of answering questions to be high. It's a bit like repetition in a gym. Okay. It's a bit like practicing scales on a keyboard. You've got to get the frequency in for it to develop into the equivalent of a motor memory. So what else would I do when it comes to recall? I've got, I've definitely got, you know, that's one of my don'ts little and often spaced practice okay that was a phrase that wasn't around when i first started teaching but it makes so much sense that we should space out the practice okay let let's say we've got over the course of a week 15 minutes to be able to practice a skill number facts should we do it that 15 minutes all in one go or should we spread those that practice that 15 minutes over the course of the week well studies show that if you space that practice over the course of the week so let's say five lots of three minutes that's more effective for long-term retention than it is to have it all in one go which is called blocked practice so you've got blocked versus spaced so we know that space repetition space practice is really good 
uh, for long-term memory. We know that low stakes practice, low stakes quizzing mm. can be fun. It can be engaging. I'm going to talk about that in relation to anxiety later on, but low stakes quizzing because we are bringing down the risk of failure. We are taking away a lot of the emotional aspect that's riding on getting an answer right or wrong. We're de-risking it. And I think that's really important. And if we de-risk it, actually, we open the door for fun, celebration, progress, joyfulness. And that's kind of what I what I now spend a lot of my time doing day to day is trying to work out how to bring joy factor into essentially low stakes quizzing and little and often practice. That's my that's my day job nowadays. Interleaving. That's this idea of if you've kind of got one strand of knowledge or skills. Let, let's use times tables as an example. Let, let's say you've kind of got this, the five times table as a string. You keep you practice that. You don't want to just practice that in isolation forever because you you now need them to know the six times table. Mm. Don't necessarily then just go hard into the six times table. You want to interleave. Well, think of the word weave. Think of it like tapestry or basket weaving. You want to weave practice of the five still into mm. practice of the six times table. That's how I understand interleaving is kind of the meshing, the the weaving of strands of, of maths concepts that you're doing to bring them together so that I guess they don't get forgotten in a way so that prior learning keeps getting brought up, keeps getting used. I think more and more teachers are familiar with um, the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve. It's this like yeah. graph that kind of goes like this, that we the sooner you bring something back up, uh, they the the quicker they unforget it, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and the more frequently that thing keeps getting brought up, let's say each day, the quicker and quicker they unforget something, that they remember it, of course. We talked about small chunks before, putting those in order so that students can make sense and meaning of them. Like when I do times tables practice, I would probably build them up within a table in order, like one times 10, two times 10, three times 10. I would then put those tables in a particular order that made sense. We won't just start off with the twos and then go to the threes, the fours, the fives. I think a lot of teachers will know this, that we should probably work with the tens first, then the twos, then the fives, practice all of those together. That's where our interleaving comes in. Yeah. Then we can move on to the threes and the fours. We can use our prior knowledge. When we're doing the fours, we can show how that's double the twos. So again, we are kind of working on prior knowledge there, showing those how they all work together. Remembering the inverses. You you remember what I was saying about working the problem backwards? Yeah. Doing the inverse is always important. So when we're doing addition, you do subtraction at the same time. When you're doing multiplication, you've got to do uh, division. Or the commutative property of multiplication, if you're doing everything with the the you know one of the factors, let's say we're doing the five times table, you don't always just want to have five on the right of the multiplication sign, you want to sometimes want to have it on the left. Mm. Well, you want to present it as both so that students get the chance to say, well, what's the same? What's different? Mm. Like, oh, five times six, six times five. What's different is that the factors seem to be, you know, they, they've switched places, but what's the same? 30, we still got the same product. Mm. Why is that? Let's have a look at that. Let's have a look at an array, you know, five by six, six by five, lo and behold, five groups of six and six groups of five, you come out with the same answer. Like, whoa, that, you know, that's quite a cool concept that we can explicitly bring out. <laughs> and so that's where I guess recall and understanding 
fit together. It's like, yeah, you're teaching students to know these facts, but you're telling them about the concepts that underpin them mm. and hopefully doing that in a really smart way. Yeah. And so where, where do we go wrong with the recall? Where do we go wrong? <clears throat> so low, low frequency of repetition, like not giving the chance to, to kind of over and over practice something totally randomizing the question sets. So before I made up my little times table initiative, like the things that I was, I was seeing other times table initiatives doing was randomizing the questions far too much. So you'd be pulling on far too many different questions. Mm. There wasn't enough repetition over the same questions. There wasn't the right ordering of questions. So if I was doing space repetition of anything, I would be not trying to change too much. I would be not trying to make the stakes really high and make this a really risky proposition for the students. So I would not be, for example, getting putting kids on the spot. I would not be like using, I, I, I think timing, timed quizzes are useful and important. And in fact, you know, I stand by them as a way to measure a student's recall, like where they're at with their recall, yeah. like that seconds per question is a really useful metric in that regard but time tests done badly uh, and this is where joe bowler is coming from okay i've got i've i want to come on to kind of thinking about some of joe bowler's ideas and things in just a moment but where joe bowler is coming from and sometimes what you might hear coming from 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 educators around around that camp is that time tests create anxiety. Mm. They don't have to create anxiety. It's mm. the stakes that create anxiety. It's children feeling that this is a risk that they're being put on the spot that creates anxiety. Yeah. It's if the questions are so random, they don't have, you know, a, a hope in hell's chance of answering the same number of questions as their friends because they're just not there yet. This, like, it's too much for them. So it comes back to working memory as well and sequencing things, chunking things that's what creates anxiety it's like how much they stand to lose mm. how and so i would say to the you know to, to the to educators who think oh right time tests bad automatic bad it's an automatic no it's a hard pass for me i was like well hold on a sec there is some utility in low stakes quizzing one way to check that we're making progress and that we have some some automaticity there is to use some timer some timed aspect mm. but you can mess it up if you are overloading the students not giving them enough time telling them that this is like the be all and end all going to their parents with scores mm. shaming them in front of their peers making things too public right that's where we're going to get it wrong there's so many ways to get it right so many ways to make it joyful celebrate the wins celebrate the progress certificates music happiness joy factor like 100 possible mm. with time tests so yeah, I think there are there is definitely there are some biases around recall and automaticity. It being you know in in the UK it became pretty dirty word for quite some time. We've kind of had this reversal in attitude though since about 2010. Mm -hmm. In the last 10 to 13 years, people are coming around to this idea, and it comes back to science of maths and evidence based approaches, like thinking or realizing like we can't just transmit times table facts and kind of small number facts through osmosis anymore. Mm. We can't just do it like hoping that they're going to, if I teach them area and fractions and all this other stuff that sure enough uses 
multiplication facts. They're not just suddenly going to learn them by doing all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to explicitly teach them, have some deliberate practice, have some low state quizzing, have a lot of repeti spaced repetition. And then you can then start to do all the math that sits on top of that and develop the conceptual understanding. But repetition and recall and rote learning has really developed a bad rap. Mm. That's because it can be done badly. Uh, and so I, I think people went away with this romantic idea that they would learn the facts through osmosis. Unfortunately, that's super unlikely to happen. There's a, there's a line of thinking out there as well, which is, okay, well, we'll just teach them like a group of the facts. Let's just say we teach them the tens and the twos and the fives. And from that, we can get them to derive all the others. Oh, look, I'm all for students understanding the relationships between facts to the point where they can derive others. Like I was doing a session this morning in a school in another suburb of, of Sydney. And we talked about what can you use to help you with nine times three? Like, you know, it's, it's 27. That's out of the question. I know, you know, it's 27, but tell me about what other facts are connected to nine times three that you could use if you didn't know nine times three was 27. So they all had different ways of, of explaining to me how they would come up with nine times three, which is brilliant. Mm -hmm. That's the understanding that I want them to get to. That's the recall that I want them to have. But this, this idea that they're going to derive all other facts from a few basic core facts, I think is really unhelpful to students in the long term. Mm. It's really unhelpful. And the reason why it's going to overload their working memory. Yeah. Like let's say come back to five times six. And you know, you're trying to do areas, you've got a, a five centimeters by six centimeters. All they've got to do is five times six. But not only are they now like trying to understand what you mean by area and centimeters and remember the units and all this, they're trying to figure out how to get to five times six is 30. And they're like, okay, well, what am I going to do here? Am I going to count through my fives? Am I going to use my knowledge of five times five to get to five times six? We can't just assume that or, or allow for the fact that they're going to have to derive these facts. Like, I'm afraid not, guys. I'm, in, I'm, I'm going to place my chips on students knowing times table facts being a really helpful thing. And addition to subtraction facts and subitizing. Can we just have a shout out for subitizing? I want to bring that back. Mm -hmm. It's probably something that we used to do back in the day. It went out of favor. It got lost, got forgotten. I don't know. It's in the archive somewhere, but subitizing, counting without counting, just like if I put up a certain number of fingers, you would know how many I've put up without even thinking. Like, anyway, all right. Shout out for subitizing now. <laughs> yeah. So there's definitely some biases and some, some attitudinal thinking amongst uh, certain teacher camps around recall saying it's like, it's antiquated. It's industrial age. Like it's, we shouldn't be doing that, but no, actually there's a real place for knowing stuff. And that, again, that comes back to evidence-backed approaches, science of learning, knowledge approaches. So I love what the knowledge society stand for. I love what Learn stand for in Australia. Those two organizations in particular, like championing, knowing stuff mm. <laughs> and, and knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. Like I'm a massive advocate, obviously for teaching maths. But believe it or not, I'm a huge advocate as well for reading programs in schools. Like it was totally transformational in the school that we started, King Solomon Academy. We had this massive reading program. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm going to back this as a math teacher because, in fact, what, we're gonna, what I wanted to move on to now is problem solving. You know, how often do you get students where you've, you've taught them the maths, you've taught them the fundamentals, you can get them to like perform the procedures, they even understand the procedures. Mm -hmm. But then you throw that into a word problem or something out of context and they're like, I have no idea what's going on. 
the thing that that made or one of the things that made such a difference for me at King Solomon is that we had a daily re- reading program drop everything and read dear time it was called and that involved teachers too so we would have half an hour after lunch teachers and students in a lovely calm quiet silent classroom reading for half an hour each child with their own book each teacher with their own book made a massive thing about reading even big you know bigger than anything else really and that made a huge difference to their ability to understand what was going on in a maths problem yeah so i i listened to the i watched the the think forward educators webinar workshop the other day with, with sarah from university in texas uh, and she has these to be fair like great uh, attack strategies she calls them for problem solving and i do i had one of my own called rucksack to be fair yeah. you know it's a rubric to help students and i think those rubrics for attacking problems can be really helpful but reading like and that's where i think the science of reading has got a lot to offer like everybody's educational agenda you get kids reading through synthetic phonics and great structured reading programs that's going to help them everywhere including and especially in maths and math problem solving so yeah let, let's move then into problem solving and inquiry stuff because there might be some people listening who are like mm, i am an you know i'm an inquiry-led teacher i love project-based learning and i, I might start to use those kind of interchangeably if, if you like yeah because i guess they borrow from each other and i'm going to keep coming back to this idea of of having my cake and eating it I want students to understand the concepts. I want them to be able to know stuff. I want them to be diverted by the math and inquisitive and follow a line of thought, try stuff out, work together. And I do think there's a great space in the classroom and in my syllabus, in my in my timetable for projects, for inquiry, for richer tasks. I think that's where we're going to get a lot of the, the like, the beauty of maths if you like being exposed some of the the applications some of the like f- my favorite comments would be like this isn't maths this is just fun <laughs> like what are we doing this isn't even maths uh, that wasn't even a maths lesson like brilliant like i've duped you into if you like it sounds really harsh like i, I i'm in the you know the habit of masquerading or like trying to cover stuff up but if they are, you know, inquisitive and enjoying it and delving into a train of thought, that's great. So I do, I do appreciate inquiry-led learning. I do appreciate problem solving and project-based learning. But I think for me, it's probably a ratio thing. Like the way I would set up my terms when I'm writing out like what I'm going to teach over the course of the next term, I would probably have day one, I'd probably do a pre-quiz, pre-assessment quiz. And I'll do a very similar one, almost identical, but not quite at the, towards the end of the term. So I've got like a pre and post measure yeah. in between those. I'm going to be doing lots of instruction, practice, interleaving, teaching for understanding, recall, interleave practice, like using lesson warm ups, the beginning of lessons as warm ups, space repetition, all that jazz. Right. So that's it's, we in England have six to seven week half terms. Yeah, uh, I would use the final week and a half to do the post quiz, to go through that post quiz and just kind of cover off any misconceptions still lingering. And we would then probably use the last four or five days of term to do something much richer, something off topic, something deeper, something tangential, something crazy. Like we had, we did an art competition using logo. You ever done, do you remember like 
programming a turtle to draw across to draw lines across the screen where it's like fd 10 forward 10 like rt 90 turn right 90 degrees and then it draws a line on the page yeah. we did an art competition yeah. just like with these little t- turtles drawing lines across the screen i've done stuff from dan mayer's in, in america oh my god love to meet him so i'd be such a fanboy his three act tasks i used to use those all the time they're they're a lot of fun he has worked <clears throat> i'm not sure if he's still working closely with joe bola so what i would learn from joe and i met joe because <clears throat> when we started king solomon academy yeah one of the things that we were going to knew we were going to be doing was mixed attainment classes yeah. so not streaming classes but having students from different different attainment backgrounds in maths together yes. in one classroom and that was kind of not the flavor of the months in the uk in maths classrooms and secondary schools it's all about setting them or streaming them by attainment yeah. and so when when we decided we were going to go down this mixed attainment route i needed to turn to someone who who knew had, had done some research on this had, uh, had figured this out and joe she was working at the university of sussex in brighton at the time she she invited me down we spent some time so the, the, what i take away from from some of joe's earlier work and studies are around how to organize group work really well okay i think she's got a lot of good stuff to say about positive attitudes to math not definitely not taking away that from that aspect either of her work but in particular what i borrowed a lot from her from her work was around uh, group projects and so we got quite meta in my classroom about group work we didn't just do the group work it's like right guys i want you to work in a group today here's the task we actually as a class we sort of studied group work what is effective group work we practice i did like non-examples and examples of good group work we practiced it we had one group acting as a sort of exemplar group with other people with some of the rest of the class kind of watching from the outside just observing thinking about okay what was what was working well there we always gave within the group different roles and people sort of learned like there was a rubric of what makes you know how do you perform well in this role versus that role so i knew that when they were then working in projects and working as groups it was going to be effective because i think one of the criticisms of of group work and inquiry-led learning is that they don't actually learn what you want them to learn yeah they learn often like the you know the, some of the hoo-ha around it and you know you ask the child at the end of the day so what did you do today oh i don't know we built a bridge i'm like oh that sounds fun so what did you actually learn oh i don't know that i really like the brown blocks mm-hmm. <laughs> or like or you know i could they, they can't tell you what they've actually learned what was meaningful what the teacher really wanted you to learn so i tried to improve on that by making sure that i explicitly taught them about how to be good group workers mm-hmm. uh, and so i took that that's one of the things i've definitely taken from joe bola's earlier work uh, and yeah so I, i've got a place in my heart in my math curriculum for inquiry led uh, project-based learning i won't use it all the time i think the trouble with project-based learning for me is that you're trying to shoehorn uh, something that you're trying to teach something you know you want to teach into a problem where there isn't a good fit mm. okay so I wouldn't be led entirely by project-based learning. I would use it, like I say, probably at the end of a term as a diversion, as a way to go deeper, as a way to remind students that there's a whole load of inquisitive stuff that we can do. And the Enrich website from Cambridge University is an absolute treasure trove of fantastic activities categorized by 
kind of difficulty topic maybe suggested age range that would be suitable for there's always some really good like stuff that you can find on that website for the price of a cup of coffee each month you can support the knowledge for teachers podcast and help me provide more in-depth case studies and ensure its sustainability i would be truly grateful if you went to patron.com slash knowledge for teachers podcast patrons will also get access to exclusive episodes my key takeaways from each episode and more For large organisations that are interested in sponsoring the Knowledge for Teachers podcast, send me an email at brendan at learnwithlee.net. Yeah, look, yeah, and and I think, you know, what you're talking about here is just how education isn't that simple. You know, it's not like you just do one thing or the other. You've got to do a, a huge range of different, you know, teaching techniques or strategies or pedagogies, whatever you want to call them, and it's not, yeah, just like if you're in the explicit instruction camp, that's all you're doing. Yeah. And like one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately on this aspect is just around three things to consider. The stage of learning that the learner is at, mm-hmm. the task complexity, mm-hmm. and then the level of scaffolding. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about those three things, well, then that's going to kind of um, vary the way that you actually teach it. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And you're right there, just we we can get so caught up in the politics, the polarizing this like, oh, explicit instruction, people say this and making the assumption that explicit instruction teachers, all they do is do explicit direct instruction 24 seven. Mm. But I bet you if you sit down and had a, you know, a nice exchange and a cup of coffee with some explicit instruction teachers, they'll tell you, oh, well, yeah, I do it a lot of the time. But like there are other times when I do, like, I don't do it. And I use it judiciously and, and and vice versa. Like you speak to a, you know, a project-based kind of teacher or an inquiry-led teacher. Like, yeah, they like to do a lot of inquiry-led stuff, but they'll do some fairly didactic teaching. Mm. And so it's like, yeah, of course, guys, we're in the, <laughs> there is a lot of consensus that we agree on. There is a lot of you know, stuff that we, yeah, that we, that we agree on. All right. So I think we're up to. Yeah, that, that was number four. So anxiety and mindset, right? There's, there's a lot of things around psychological words that i'm going to throw in here like motivation intrinsic and extrinsic motivation anxiety self-concept locus of control norms biases these are really Mm. key ideas that i i hope like kind of keep feeding into initial teacher training and if if you're past that point look it up there'll be some great blogs and easy things to to digest youtube videos right but anxiety it could be such a blocker uh, as we know. And so what I try to do is to minimize the chance of there being anxiety in my classrooms. Like I want fun, smiles, positivity, reassurance. And I, I do a lot of, well, not necessarily overt reassurance, but like it's implied in the way I've designed the task that they're going to be reassured that there's like an entry route into this, mm. like that there's going to be a feeling of success early on just to give them like a little bit of a resilience as the maths gets tougher and maths anxiety for me or in my understanding is not something we're born with mm. okay you don't get a, a four-year-old saying yeah I'm, you know don't ask me any number questions i'm really anxious about this like this is like or not giving that vibe right mm. maths anxiety is something that is developed or is learned okay and it can be super crippling for those who 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 get it who are prone to it 
but it's also very avoidable. Mm. It, it doesn't have to be learned. Okay. So students are kind of making a link between how they're doing in math, say, and who they are as a mathematician. They're creating a maths identity. And self-concept is this idea of whether you've got the ability to do something. Is it, is it, you know, do I conceive of myself as someone who can do maths or not? And if you start to conceive of yourself as someone who can't do maths, then feelings of anxiety are going to start to creep in. Mm. Like there's an open door, right? For anxiety to, 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 to come in. If you're starting to say, I'm no good at maths. So how do you, how do you, how do we stop that happening? Well, we start by being good at maths, Mm. right? And that comes from great evidence-based approaches to teaching. That's why I'm on this journey. That's why I think this, you know, what we're talking about today is kind of making sure that students are successful so that anxiety is not a thing. I know there's this like idea that maybe a little bit of anxiety and sort of friction is helpful. Probably it is, you know, it can sometimes improve our performance. I'm talking about the anxiety that's, that's hindering mm. students. I'm talking about the anxiety that's, and it even isn't full blown anxiety, but it's leading students to say, I'm not good at maths. And it can often be associated with, I mentioned it before with recall practice, Yeah, you know, and people saying time tests cause anxiety. They don't have to. I told you, I said, low stakes quizzing bring down that risk factor and sure students are going to jump in make it more likely they're going to be successful with examples and non-examples so they know exactly what you're talking about do minimally different questions and examples so they can see and they can make the cognitive jump with you so they're not lost in this sea of too many things changing that's going to make them more likely to be successful to follow what you're talking about for them to go out and leave the classroom saying Oh yeah, I nailed that lesson. I bossed it. Mm. Like I love maths. Uh, I feel good at it. And that's how we're going to, that's a myth for me. That's like, those are my mitigation strategies against, against anxiety in the classroom. And sure. Like I love to dial up like the fun. So music during the do now at the beginning of the lesson, rock music to go along with the times table practice, a bit of daftness jokes, you know, like friendly, friendly chat, a lot of, love and affection if you like for you know for the students in our in our school we had this phrase called strict warmth Mm -hmm. so we had clear lines for behavior but we also had like fantastic reward mechanisms and we talked to the students and with the students in a really caring way they knew why we were holding the line on certain things we knew they knew they understood that we were on their side that we'd come up with these norms collectively as a school so that they could all learn, so that they could all go off and have happy, productive, successful lives as adults. And so I liked what Robin and Kevin were talking about in one of your earlier podcasts around behavior. And I mentioned also about teach like a champion and those strategies and how you can just kind of create this calm, purposeful atmosphere. Again, that's then just the right environment to reduce the chances for anxiety where everybody feels like they can contribute. They're not going to be shamed for trying something and getting it wrong, celebrating mistakes or like, you know, endorsing them, demonstrating them yourself. I was recently on holiday with my sister and she has this thing around really owning up to mistakes and talking as a family about here are my, here are five mistakes I've made today. And like, mm. like we were counting as we'd go through the day, like saying in front of the children, Oh, well, that's my third mistake of the day. And just really normalizing mistakes and how important it is that we you know that we make them in order to learn 
every musician, every I, I always come back to sports and maths and music because I think those three disciplines are where you see a lot of practice and people refining and spending time. So I think there's a lot of you can learn from each from those different disciplines. They mistakes in sports, mis, making mistakes in music, fundamental to their growth and skill development. So anyway, those are my sort of collection of thoughts around anxiety that that you're not born with it. Yeah. So therefore, we must children must be kind of learning it or developing it therefore if they're learning or developing it it stands to reason that they can not develop it in the first place mm. and so what are our mitigation strategies <laughs> really wicked effective evidence-based teaching a calm orderly atmosphere in the classroom i do like to teach in rows i think kevin really nailed it in his explanation the other day about like when you're really wanting to concentrate facing forward in rows that's going to minimize disruption and sort of kids going off into divergent thought patterns mm. uh, and being distracted as opposed to when you're doing groups yeah sw swivel the chairs and the tables so you can work in groups so again this but that is the way you set up the classroom for what you're teaching to reduce the chance of anxiety and increase the chance of feelings of success and positivity there we go like that's it like all of those things one day when i get back into the classroom i'm going to be like all over that again so yeah this is this is me just my my messages around what i think is so important stepping back from the classroom over the last few years has really get, given me the chance to reflect on it yeah. what i was doing why i was doing it piecing it all together yeah man one day i'm just like itching to get back you know, seeing your school today being in front of the classes i was just so psyched to to speak to the students and chatting with some of them at lunchtime just that their excitement energy. Yeah, look, look uh, it, it's been really fascinating, Bruno. And, and just to kind of get a bit of a recap, the five things that you, you spoke about were the science of maths and, you know, I guess why and how it can be really helpful for teachers, the importance of forming an understanding, why we also need to be doing recall. Yep. And then, you know, the beauty of maths and those the, the things that can come into it through, you know, things like inquiry-based learning and project-based learning. Yeah. There's still a place for that. Of course. Yeah. And it, it's, it's all to do with what their prior knowledge is and how much time you're dedicating to it yeah. as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then, yeah, going back to anxiety, which you, you kind of touched on a few times, but a lot of that can be alleviated if we teach kids the information that they need and yeah. help them be successful in, in getting yeah. to record. And, you know, when it comes to anxiety, there are a lot of stories that and analogies and metaphors that students can, can be taught. Like think of like fables where you, there's like, you come away with the moral of the story is, and the moral of the story is, well, practice, practice is useful or everybody's different or like making mistakes is helpful mm. or, you've got to persevere sometimes or you've got to pick yourself back up just those like you could if you know these stories that when you get kind of frustrated and anxious in a, in a math situation if you can just kind of step back like oh this is like that character i heard in a story where you know they persevered and it was all worthwhile or they made mistakes they got back up they kept going they tried something else i think sometimes we kind of need to take kids out of the, this moment of frustration and anxiety that they might be in that like the high emotional state that they're in step back from that for a second got some of those stories in mind that are actually on spotify and youtube on our numbots channel um just because i think mindset is so important 
uh, in maths uh, and it can't be understated really that I think well, this is my psychology background coming mm-hmm. through like maybe if I was a pure maths teacher all I'd done was at university was maths I, I would be you know I'd, I'd have a different take but like I'm trying to piece all together everything I know about learning emotions psychology maths you know bring it all together Awesome. Bruno, last question. Oh, yeah. You know, this is the other Knowledge for Teachers podcast. Yes. The last thing I'd like to ask people is, you know, are there any other bits of knowledge or resources that you would recommend for teachers? Oh, man. And you've already mentioned like a great like, list. I, I am spent. I, I'm going to recap them now, though, because yeah. Thinkers is uh, like one of my Bibles uh, when it comes to uh, forming questions. Explicit and Direct Instruction, a book by Adam Boxer. Teach Like a Champion by Doug Lamov. I would read like all the blogs on the Think Forward Educators website. I'd be you know, listening to the other blogs in your, your podcast on your channel. The one Kieran's is another great one. Yeah. Christopher's is another great one. Any more things to offer? I mean, I, I'll, I'll give a little shout out to times table rock stars and numbots if people want to go and find out more about those but i won't i'll leave it at that mate it's been a pleasure you've done really well to get through today without <laughs> too much jet lag it'll <laughs> kick in this weekend i'm sure it's all um, good yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure thanks everybody. yeah no worries i i've said to you many times in the last couple of weeks i'm just super pumped and energized for what's going on in australia right now like all these organizations and educators on the same page pulling together like there's a real mm-hmm. nucleus uh, and of educators just saying the same things about evidence-backed approaches and like wow this is exciting so i'm chuffed to be over here chuffed to meet you in person i'm going to be meeting some of the the other stars of our time looking forward to meeting them in the next few weeks but i think like whatever like all the stuff that's going on in australia right now like it, it's it's a place to be looking looking towards and seeing what you guys are doing Awesome. Thank you. All right. Really loved chatting with Bruno and couldn't believe that he wanted to record this episode less than 24 hours after landing in Australia. Here are my key takeaways. We need to look at ways of giving beginning teachers multiple opportunities to teach the same lesson. I loved his example of how he has applied his understanding of cognitive load theory in multi-step problems to just isolate the make or break decision part of it and practice through multiple repetitions. Bruno highlighted how he was obsessed with multiple representation through minimally different questions and minimally different examples. He also spoke about how non-examples can help learners understand the limits of a new concept. Mini whiteboards were mentioned again as a great way to get that high frequency of whole class student input. When looking at recall activities, they don't have to be boring or a negative experience, and he didn't say it, but I will. Times Tables Rockstars is such a great example of how Bruno has put his understanding of the cognitive science such as retrieval space and interleave practice into the program. By celebrating the progress and focusing on individual improvements, students also love it. If we teach community property and inverse relationships, we're giving them that conceptual understanding while building procedural fluency. We need to get students to over-practice to the point of automaticity. If you're going to do group work, teach them what to do in group work. We can prevent maths anxiety by helping them be good at maths and normalise mistakes. Do minimally different questions and examples so that they can see and they can make the cognitive jump with you. Times Tables Rockstars is currently promoting Oz Rocks, which will be on the 17th to 19th of October and is a free online Times Tables competition for schools in Australia. Take part if you want to boost maths confidence and get the school buzzing. 
Next episode, you will hear from Jessica Del Rio, the Government and Public Finance Lead at Equity Economics. She recently led the report, Saving Money by Spending, Solving Illiteracy in Australia. And we will unpack what we need to do to improve our literacy outcomes across the nation. However, that's it from me for today. And as always, stay curious, keep learning and teach with purpose. Bye for now.